we think about what they remind us of. And sometimes with our symbols, we recognize that we have something that is a picture of something that matters the most to us. Almost everybody in this room at some point wears a symbol of the athletic team you support. It may be the college team that you support. It may be a professional football team or baseball team or basketball team. But when you wear that symbol, whatever it may be, you're reminding folks, hey, this is my team. These are the people I support. Some of us have corporate symbols that mean everything to us. If you've ever traveled overseas, you recognize that when you've been away for a while and you've been eating food that is not familiar to you, there is nothing better than to find yourself in the city, often toward near the airport, and all of a sudden you'll see the golden arches. And you think, hey, that's my kind of food. Sometimes the symbols are things that remind us of what we believe, which is why the cross is central to our fellowship, to our sanctuary. You know, for the first 200 years of Christian history, believers did not use a cross to symbolize Christianity. In fact, it never occurred to anybody that you might want to use something as bloody and vicious as a symbol of the cross. So in the very early church, they used the symbol of the fish. You've probably seen that from time to time. That acrostic, ichthus, that means Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. And when Christians would meet on the street, if it were not safe to identify yourself, one person might draw the first half of the fish, and then the other would complete it. And they would know they were with other believers. But as time went by, and particularly the time of Constantine, who became the first Roman emperor who converted to Christianity, the cross began to become the symbol of what it meant to become a believer. And over the centuries that followed, that was really what Christians identified. If you see old churches and old cathedrals, you'll always see the cross as central to those buildings. As believers, we know that when we see the cross, we recognize that we're in the presence of those who believe in Jesus Christ. But then over the last few decades, even that has changed again. The cross has become a common feature in the jewelry that people wear every day. And so many people will buy a a necklace or a bracelet or earrings or some symbol, and it will be the shape of a cross. But if you ask them, so what does that mean to you? Most of them, many of them, will say, it doesn't really mean anything to me. I just saw it and I thought it was pretty, so I bought it and I'm wearing it. The cross has become an ornament for many people and nothing more. Because that's the way the world would like things to be. The world would like to see the cross come to nothing. The world would like to think that every time you see the symbol of the cross, all you see is something made of gold, maybe encrusted with diamonds, but with no meaning whatsoever for anybody anywhere. A few years back, Ted Turner described Christianity as a religion for weaklings. Nobody should want to embrace that sort of faith. 
Islam believes that the crucified Savior is evidence that the Christian faith is not authentic. Because God would never allow something like that to happen to his son. A reporter was approached at the Super Bowl. Some believers were sharing their faith, and after he heard what they had to say, he later boasted to other people, and this is what I said to them. I can't believe you people still embrace that stuff. The world wants something to happen to the cross. Forget it. Reject it. Take away the meaning. But in spite of all the efforts to steal the power, the Bible reminds us that the cross still speaks loudly and clearly to a world that needs the forgiveness that only Jesus can bring. And in fact, in the passage we read together a few moments ago, it reminds us of some things that the cross does to a lost and dying world. The first thing it does is this. Without a doubt, the cross offends the world. Paul said it this way. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Now understand, he wasn't just identifying two groups of people. He was talking about the Jewish people, the people of God, who had always identified with God. But when he talked about the Greeks, really what he was saying was, and everybody else. All of those lost people who have never been part of God's people, who don't know anything about the kingdom of God, all of those people out there, those are the people he identified as the Greeks. It reminds us that whenever the world encounters the serious call of the cross, it is offended by the message of a crucified Savior. In fact, I would say this. The cross offends the world in three ways. The first thing is this. It offends, it confronts the world's pride. The cross dares to proclaim two things that the world doesn't want to hear. The first thing it declares is this. You are lost. You are lost. Your sin has separated you from God. Left to yourself without a Savior You have no hope, not in this world and not in eternity to come. You are a lost person. We used to hear that word a lot. We don't hear it a lot anymore these days. We don't talk to people about being lost, but that's what it is. It's lost and separated from God. And the cross says to the world around us, if you don't know him, you're lost. You're carrying your sin everywhere you go, and there's nothing you can do to bring yourself home again. You are lost because the second thing it says is this. Not only that you're lost, but you cannot save yourself. You can't do it. No matter how determined you are, no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you seek to find some kind of truth that makes sense aside from the cross, you can't do it. And it offends the world's pride. None of us like to hear somebody say, you can't. You can't do that. It is impossible for you. What do we say? Watch me. I'll show you. But the cross reminds us that 
in our pride, if we're not careful, we turn away from the Lord and we determine for ourselves, I can find my own way. I can discover my own truth. I can save my own self. I can make myself right with God. No, you can't. And it offends our pride to hear that kind of message coming from the cross. And yet that's the message it brings. Not only does it confront the world's pride, it also challenges the world's wisdom. Paul reminds us of that, that the Greeks are seeking wisdom. They're trying to find some new understanding. The cross dares to declare nobody is wise enough to discover a way to heaven apart from the cross. You might say that's the story of human history. The story of human history with all of our religions and all of our conflicts and all of our philosophies and all of our searching is the story of people trying to find some way to make sense out of life. Some way to save themselves, to discover some sort of uh, avenue to God that does not require a cross. Here's the problem. No matter what people have come to believe, they all fall short in the face of eternity. If I had to talk about the false religion of our time, I would probably talk about the false religion of knowledge and wisdom. The idea that somehow we can know enough, we can invent enough, we can be technological enough that somehow we'll find our own way. But Erwin Lutzer says this, the cross spells the end to salvation by education. The cross says, no matter what you do, it's not going to be enough. The cross confronts the world's pride and it challenges the world's wisdom. And it rejects the world's values. You know, the world has its own set of values. It says this, you get what you earn in this world. The world around you is full of the winners and the losers, the weak and the strong, the rich and the poor. And we like to believe that somehow if we can just find ourselves on top of one of those lists, then we can make ourselves better than other people. If I have more than you have, if I know more than you know, if I've done more than you've done, that makes me better than you. But the cross reminds us that the ground at the cross is level. That God doesn't love one group more than another group. But everybody is equal at the foot of the cross. That salvation can't be claimed. It can only be received. And we come to the cross. And the world is offended. And the world is offended. Because the cross also dares to judge the world. The cross insults the world because it clearly proclaims that the crucifixion, the cross alone, is the one and only standard upon which all of eternity hinges. It challenges men with the truth that the names of those who are not covered by the cross will not be found in the book of life when the day of judgment comes. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we want to overlook that. 
but it's true. It judges the world because the cross says, I'm the only standard. The crucified Christ is the only means by which we can make our lives right with God. It de- uh, the cross dares to declare that those who will not come to God through the power of the cross are doomed to suffer eternally in a place called hell. If I'm not found in the cross, I'm not found in the kingdom. If I'm not found in the kingdom, then I suffer eternal torment separated from God. We probably don't talk about that as much as we should, but it's the truth, isn't it? That the cross is the standard. It judges the world. And the only way it judges the world is simply to say, do you belong to him or do you not belong to him? And nothing else really matters. Have you trusted the power of the cross? Are you trusting anything else to give you eternal hope? And the cross dares to say, there is nothing else. Ray Pritchard's written this. He says, the cross stands as a silent sentinel proclaiming that you have to come God's way or you won't come at all. Boy, that's strong, isn't it? It's strong and it's true. When you think about the power of the cross to judge the world, I think the best image that we have is the image of the two thieves who were crucified along with Jesus. Both of them equally guilty. Both of them equally deserving of judgment. Both of them offered an opportunity to trust Jesus and to spend eternity with him. One said yes. One said no. One found himself in paradise. The other found himself in hell. And that's the choice people face all of the time. What am I going to do with Christ? Not just Christ, the Christ of the cross. Not just the cross, the crucified one whose blood covers my sin. What am I going to do with Jesus? The cross offends the world. The cross judges the world. But most of all, Corinthians tells us that the cross saves the world. It offers hope to everyone who will place their trust in Christ. Our passage says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross proclaims the truth that all the world needs to hear, that we are saved by the power of God through the crucifixion of his Son alone. And the forgiveness that is offered from the cross is freely offered to all who believe. Yes, the cross offends the world. Yes, the cross judges the world. But we remember that God's plan through the cross is to save the world. That all who will believe can have the confidence that their lives are right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the central message we've been commanded to proclaim. It's not enough that the cross is central 
to this sanctuary if the one standing in front of the cross and behind this pulpit is proclaiming anything other than a crucified Christ and salvation through him. If our church ever declared a message that avoid the saving, avoided the saving reality of the cross, then we would no longer have anything to say that mattered. If we began to preach a message that says, just be good, be nice, love others, do the best you can, but there's no crucified Savior, then we might as well read a Hallmark card and go to the house because all the power is gone. Not long ago, I read about a lecture that was shared by a Baptist theologian. It was called, How Baptists Are to Relate to Other Religions. And this is what that particular man said. He said, as Baptists, what we should do is love people and shut up. He explained, there are a variety of ways to heaven, and to believe there's only one way is nothing but spiritual egotism. Love God and shut up. He said that he himself had chosen the way of the cross. But that didn't mean everybody had to follow that way. After he was done, there was a question and answer time. And someone brought up John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And he responded to that by saying every responsible theologian recognizes there are all kinds of ways you can interpret that passage. But the message of the cross is this. No, there is not. There is no other way. And any of us who say to ourselves, I can find another way, are deceiving ourselves and turning away from the only hope that any of us have. You see, this is the basic truth. Maybe this is all I really needed to say this morning. If the cross is right, then everything else is wrong. And if any other way leads to heaven then the crucifixion is a terrible tragedy and nothing more. If there was any other way than the cross, then the sacrifice that Jesus made was a useless sacrifice. But there is no other way. If you choose to remove the cross, you remove the offense but you also forfeit the power to save. That's why we must join Paul in boldly declaring with confidence, 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 23, for the Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. The world may not like it, but the world needs it. 
It may be offensive. It may sound judgmental. But it's true. The cross is the only hope for a lost and dying world. And it is the only hope for a lost and dying soul. And that's why the real question that all of us face this morning is simply this. Is your life found beneath the cross of Jesus? The world around you may say it's not important. It's not necessary. It's irrelevant. But the word of God says the cross is your one and only hope for everlasting life. So I guess my question for you this morning is, do you find yourself saved by the Savior who gave his life on a cross? Have you trusted him as your Lord? Today has been a a very simple message, but I hope a very plain message as we continue to discover what the cross means and why it is our hope. Is it your hope have you trusted him if not in just a moment we're going to stand and sing an invitation hymn and I'm going to be here at the front and you can come down this aisle and meet me here and I'll introduce you to the one who gave his life for you or maybe you're here and God's calling you to be part of this church to plant your membership here because you want to be in a cross-centered place where the gospel is proclaimed in a clear way And you can come to know the Lord in a deeper and richer way. And maybe you need to come today. Maybe there's another decision. We're going to stand. We're going to sing. As God speaks to your heart, you come. Let's stand together.
It's been good to share this day in the Lord's house and to hear the message that he so much wants us to hear. Remember after the service this morning down in the fellowship hall, our college students and sojourner uh, sponsors, parents will be meeting downstairs. Rich, is there any special instructions? Or Samantha, any special instructions? Just y'all come? Okay. Well, let's bow together for a final prayer and then our last song. Father, we do thank you for the power of the cross. Thank you, Lord, uh, that we don't seek signs and we don't seek human wisdom. We seek the power of the cross. Christ crucified that we might have everlasting hope. Father, we pray that you bless us as we live in the shadow of the cross and let Christ be glorified in all we are and everything we do. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Great and mighty.